0: Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly, help raise money for charity. We've never charged for the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or local charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to the new series of Have We Got Planning News for You. Thank you so much for joining us once again after the summer. We're very really thrilled to be back. Um, as always, can I encourage you to make a charity donation in place of a registration fee? We support, as you know, the NHS Charities Together and Shelter, although we're very happy for you to donate to a charity of your choice if you prefer. Um, we're now doing the live show monthly, usually on the first Thursday of the month, but we put this one's uh, this month's... Show back a week to allow us to respond to all the planning comments coming out of the party conference season. On which subject? Build back better, but just not on green fields. But did he actually say that? Or did he want to give the impression to the party faithful that he did without saying it? Is planning reform still on? And if so, is the new zoning system now going to be this? The north, growth, the southeast, protect. Uh, well, Welling Hatfield Borough Council clearly thinks so because they've paused the latest stage of their very lengthy local plan process to ask the new Secretary of State, Michael Gove, for clarification in light of the Prime Minister's comments about green fields. Um, they've said, those comments suggest a change to planning policy in the near future? Um, and. Uh, Will they be reducing the housing numbers for um, that particular authority? And in a similar vein, South Oxfordshire District Council have asked Mr Gove to pause the Cambridge, Milton Keynes, Oxford uh, ARC plans. Well, one Tory at the uh, the conference last week famously called for the abolition of the planning inspectorate, indeed the abolition of planning appeals. Uh, But for now, uh, pins are alive and kicking, and we're delighted to welcome as our first guest of this season, their new planning appeals professional lead, David Morgan. Uh, David... Hello and welcome. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Viewers will recognise David's face from the Holocaust Memorial Inquiry, which is the most widely viewed PINS event on YouTube to date. Um, David, can you tell us what, what, where you're calling from, what theme have you chosen for today's uh, show
1: and what are you drinking? Well thank you first of all for inviting me on, The great honour. Um, I'm in, I'm in my home Uh, safely in my little office home working office Uh, and the theme I'm taking my cue from your learned friend Mr Tucker uh, and identifying what is passes predominantly for my hometown which is the historic borough of Totnes in South Devon and uh, just as by way of of a, of a direct answer to what I'm drinking, uh, it, is a, it is water. But it, with that theme in mind, I've got a, a, a nice bottle of Pinot for later on from the Sharfman Estate, which is just outside the uh, the town of my youth. Fantastic.
0: <laughs> <So> I- <laughs> Fantastic, well, welcome again. Now it's time to introduce the panel. And first of all, Mary, Mary, hello. I can hear the rest of you. Well, let's go straight to, what are you, Chris? How are you doing? Tell us, tell us what's up. I can see see a famous house in the background. Yes,
2: I am still in recovery mode. Uh, <laughs> my legs are getting better slowly. Uh, but uh, thank you very much to everybody who uh, came out and supported us when we were running. Uh, you as well. And Sasha, thank you very much for everybody who sponsored us as well. Uh, thank you very much uh, indeed for that. The, the the house has raised over £20,000 and I'm very grateful to everybody who has... Uh, yeah, I sponsored that. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, he, uh, Presumption is all in the mood for it. Uh, he's got his uh, London Marathon hat on. He's wearing a sheltered T-shirt. Um, somebody suggested the other day that Presumption, Presumption might be a, a female. Uh, and I said, how, how could you possibly think that? So, uh, Holly Mitchell, just to be clear, he's a male owl. All right. Just so we're absolutely clear about that. Uh, and uh, I'm at home in Hogwarts and I'm drinking...
0: Champagne. But Sasha, you're doing a pool today in a car. How are you?
3: I am, but I'm not, I'm trying not to roll around quite with as much force <laughs> as Paul did. Um, I, where Don't be I? shy. I'm, su- I, I'm somewhere on Junction One. The marathon wasn't enough. I'm making my way to Headingley to do a sponsored cycle ride back to London for the Professional Cricketers' Trust. So wow. some people think I'm mad. I think I'm mad, but I'm trying to raise money for a good cause. So that's where I am. And lovely to be back.
0: Welcome back. Uh, Mary, have we got you on sound now?
4: I hope so. Can you hear me now? Yes, you can hear me. Excellent. Well, good evening and welcome, David. I, like you, ha- have some water. But i tell you what I've done in honour of Totnes, and I I love Totnes. Um, I really do. I have three gorgeous cheeses here. Uh. One is a Sharpen's blue, uh, sorry, is a Sharpen's brie. The Mm -hmm. other is a Ticklemore goat. And finally, I've got something called the Devon blue. All of these were made in Totnes, favorite spot. And Mm -hmm. can I just recommend if anybody wants to go to Totnes, please go down the River Dart to a place called the Molster's Arms, which is a great pub. Uh, where you'll have a lovely meal, and it's a beautiful location.
1: Absolutely. The former residence of Keith Floyd, no less.
4: Indeed, indeed. And the current chef is perhaps not a boozer, but he's still an excellent chef. Paul, how are you,
5: my friend? I'm very well indeed, Charlie. I'm also aching, but for slightly different reasons. I didn't do the marathon uh, with you guys uh, a couple of weekends ago, but I did do the Yorkshire Three Peaks uh, on Sunday. So five and a half thousand feet for uh, um, well, the Stony House Association charity uh, and raised a, a very nice tidy sum. So again, thanks to all our viewers that uh, uh, sponsored me for that one. So I ache, my foot is horrible. And it also means that uh, I haven't been able to drag myself down to any local delicatessen. i dragged myself down <laughs> to the local co-op. So the, the Devon flag is because I couldn't find any Devon beer. The nearest I got is from our local <laughs> co-op, which is a bottle of Coconut stout from Cornwall. God alone knows what you guys drink down in the southwest, but I'm going to taste it now, and I don't think I'll be tasting it again. But cheers, David. How <laughs> 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 <Yeah>, much <laughs> luck to to
0: have you for this show? Well, Charlie Bader here. Um, as you can see, I'm in a slightly uh, unusual. I'm in Gibraltar. Um, I'm actually on a, <laughs> on, a, on a on the deck of a stationary cruise ship in Gibraltar, where I've just um, given a talk at the Chancery Bar Association's Gibraltar conference. I didn't ever think I'd end up speaking on a cruise ship, but there you go. You do something <laughs> new every day. Uh, as you can see, I'm about to have one of the hair moments I've had on various outdoor. Oh! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> (laughs) Um, I think think Sasha called it my Donald Trump moment, rather (laughs) unkindly. Um, I I am drinking uh, Monkey Shoulder Tonic. Monkeys, of course, being the the symbol of Gibraltar. Um, And as for my topness theme, well, I haven't got anything that you can see um, of topness. And the reason is my experience is that when when I drive through or go on the train through topness, the first thing that strikes you isn't visual, um, but it it rather affects your sense of smell. anybody who knows topness well will know what i mean um but uh, a certain pungent smell which i haven't so far smelled over here it may rad. so i don't associate topness myself with anything visual <laughs> anyway without further ado let's go to the case reports i believe paul you're kicking off with a appeal decision from uh Bex
5: hill uh, i i am uh it's a decision from uh last month end of last month by mr inspector Wilkinson. uh it was an appeal against a refusal by rother district council Um, who uh, refused consent uh, for a scheme for 160 units outline consent uh, which had been submitted as recently as July 2017 on a site which was allocated. In fact it was allocated after the the application uh, had been submitted in the uh, development and site allocations local plan. uh, the the only issue at the inquiry, as between the council and uh, the appellant, was the issue with regard to. Um, I, I don't know if Rob's got the, uh, the the outline scheme that shows what the scheme was, but you can see it's a very sustainable scheme. Um, as and when it pops up, yeah, there we go. It's tucked in right on the western side of Beck's Hill. It's an obvious location, but the difficulty is that it's it was close to, uh, within 100 metres of the hydrological catchment of the Pevensey Levels. Uh, special area of conservation which I now have read a great deal about uh, and I'm happy to impart as little as possible. The Pevensey Levels SAC as I'm sure all our viewers know is designated because of the importance of a little snail called the Little Walpole Ramshorn snail which is very tiny indeed. Uh, You can fit fit about 17 of them on your finger and apparently it is very important for those particular snails as well as other issues but they need a particular, particular hydrological uh, context? Well, it was a hard-fought inquiry, which ultimately uh, Chris's colleague at number five, Hashim Mohamed, uh, succeeded uh, in, detailed scientific evidence, which he and Jacqueline Lean got to grips with, presented before uh, the inspector, uh, and ultimately the inspector grappled with um, the issues with regards to whether the suds would, would contaminate or have an adverse effect in terms of the outfall uh, upon the SAC issues of rainfall methodology, modeling of the extent of impermeable area, effects of groundwater levels, effects of climate change, and even the effect of smoothing out water flow upon the little, little snails and whether they would be able to uh, cope with easier water than they used to. But it led to the conclusion uh, that the appropriate assessment uh, process was passed and that one could exclude on the basis of scientific uh, evidence, any risk to the snails, happy days, and consent was ultimately granted. Uh, just as an aside, there were lots of other little issues run by a very articulate third-party group, uh, including the effect of flea treatment on dogs uh, uh, contaminating the water, <laughs> which is a new one on me, I have to say. Um, but the more serious point is, this is a site which was allocated. It's a site where the application went in four years ago. The housing land supply at the time of determination was 2.8 years, and Natural England had issued uh, a couple of letters back in 2019 saying no objection. Um, whatever the system is that we operate in, th- this probably isn't a case that should have taken four years to get consented. Um, but anyway, that's the case. And it's a trip to Bexelon on Sea. Thanks, thanks, Paul. Before I pass over for the next case, I, I know, David, you've had
0: your first audience question, where someone has perceptively asked, do you and I share the same hairdresser? undoubtedly uh, <laughs> <logically> so, <laughs> the best in the world, clearly.
1: <laughs> well, along with Jack Grealish, I was going to get a football Oh, pack. lovely, oh, yeah, love yeah, 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 Exactly,
0: Good reference. Jack
3: and I, best buddies. Now, Good Sasha, you're going to
0: tell us about a, a decision from Barnet. What I was
3: going to say was, I'm going to do an appeal with one of my favourite inspectors, Mr Jackson, who... David will know well, Paul Jackson, one of the most exemplary inspectors. This is about tall buildings in Barnet. Uh, this was a case where effectively Taylor Wimpy wanted to build 300 units, uh, as we can see in North Finchley, in the delights of North Finchley. And I think this is quite an important case for those involved in the promotion and fighting of tall buildings. The uh, inspector concluded that it was, in his terms in Power 13, tall buildings was starkly out of keeping with the context uh, of which of the site. Uh, So I think it's quite important because he also found in favour of the HLS in relation to the appellants. So the tilt and balance was in play. But notwithstanding that, the fundamental point is the character and appearance of the proposal was so great in terms of its harm, so as to significantly demonstrably outweigh the benefits of the scheme. So we must all concentrate on design. Thank you,
0: John. Thanks, Sasha. Two two points of clarification. Firstly, for any of our European viewers, Sasha is in a right hand drive car. Um and and, <laughs> and, 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 and secondly, uh, you did you did um jump in and out a bit in reception it must be said sasha the bits where your section are bad probably the most perceptive uh, we've heard of you on this show <laughs> um uh now uh chris we're g- you're going to take us to sunny Didcot.
2: i will take it again but i have to say i love the way that paul told that it almost sounded like like a
5: children's bedtime story about the,
2: <laughs> about the little snails and they were
5: <laughs> very good uh, well, chris what do you call a slug with a housing problem I don't know. What do you call it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: very good. Very good. All right. But that's a bit of northern humour. That's allowed in the inspector, I believe. Um, now, uh, I'll get that in about five minutes time. Yeah. Uh, so Didcot, we're going to go to Didcut, uh, which is in South Oxfordshire. I think we've got the details of the case if we can just bring that up. Now, South Oxfordshire. Has
4: anybody been there?
2: (laughs) We've all been there. Everybody's been there. It's just constant appeals in South Oxfordshire. It's the new Cheshire, uh, Cheshire East. And uh, this is an appeal by Manor Oak Homes, uh, who I must say have been very successful in a whole series of appeals recently. Um, So well done to them. Uh, The appeal was allowed. It was in front of uh, Inspector Philip Major. It was for 150 houses, including public open space. Now, there's a lot of development going on in Didcot, it has to be said, Um, this was not an allocated site. Uh, I've got a couple of sites that are allocated in Didcot, but this is a non-allocated site. And as we all know, the South Oxfordshire plan, after a huge fandango in psychodrama, was eventually adopted. So the council's position was very much, well, this isn't in the plan, we've got a plan, shouldn't be adopted. They'd also been found not to have a five-year land supply in the Sonning uh, Common Appeal decision, which we covered at the end of last season. And um, the uh, the inspector in that case had found a lack of five-year land supply. And the council had then gone straight back in and said they had got a five-year land supply. And they'd re-looked at the numbers, got evidence. Well, I'm afraid there was more bad news because in this appeal, it was established, again, they don't have a five year land supply. And that was obviously critical to triggering the tilted balance. Uh, the inspector concluded um, that it would be, in reality, short of five years, roughly 4.8 years, but it could have been as low as 4.18. But he didn't feel the need to have to go to that level of detail. Already established a lack of five year land supply. And of course, you know, this is exactly what the Supreme Court said. If local authorities adopt plans, which don't have enough sites to deliver their five-year land supply, don't be surprised if the the, tri- uh, the tilted balance is then triggered. That's the, the Supreme Court in the Suffolk coastal case. And that's exactly what's happened in South Oxfordshire. They've taken so long to adopt their plan because of all the politics that their large six or seven large strategic sites are going to take time to come on board. So for a number of years now, the council might not have a five-year land supply and sites like this will come forward. Um, Now, the case, if we just have a look at the appearances, it was an all cornerstone affair. Uh, Tom Crosgrove was uh, very charming. Tom Crosgrove was acting for um, uh, the LPA. The equally charming uh, Richard Ground. These are all Mary's old stablemates, uh, was acting for the appellant assisted by uh, Ben Defoe. And uh, Richard won the case on behalf of Manor Oak Properties. Well done to him. Now, you'll notice there. Well done to Jeff Armstrong, uh, who acted uh, as the planning witness. But there was a landscape witness as well. Now, the critical thing about this case, aside from the 5 land supply, was um, the location. The location wasn't in the area of outstanding natural beauty, but it was right on the edge of it. It was five fields right on the edge of the AOMB. The inspector considered all the landscape evidence, obviously, quite carefully. He came to the conclusion there'd be short-term harm, but really not much harm, Um, in the longer term. So his overall view was that the the harm actually in landscape terms and visual impact terms was relatively limited. Lots of benefits with the scheme, including 60 affordable houses. Boris, if you're listening, that's what greenfield sites do. They deliver affordable housing, usually on a policy compliant level, but we won't make a political statement, will we? Um, And um, as a result, you know, lots of benefits associated with this, this scheme. It's a greenfield site coming forward, delivering affordable housing, despite a recently adopted plan. Council didn't have a fibre land supply, limited la- landscape impact. Well done, Manor Oak Homes.
0: Thanks, Chris. Uh, well, I'm going to tell you the next uh, appeal decision. Thankfully, the stag do that were a few metres away. They seem to have gone somewhere else now. I've just got to hope that I am, but you've also been very small. That's the airport behind me. So I've just got to hope that in the next three minutes, a plane doesn't come into to land. Um, it's only about five a day, so hopefully not. So I'm going to tell you about um, an appeal decision um, by, by Inspector Peter Rose concerning a, a 167 dwelling residential development in the Greenbelt. Uh, on land at Heath Lane, um, Codicut, if that's how it's pronounced, in North Hartfordshire uh, District Council's area. Uh, now, the site was allocated in the North Herts Emerging Local Plan, which was at a very advanced stage. Post-examination modifications had been consulted upon and the inspector's final report anticipated uh, early autumn. But the Council nonetheless opposed the development in advance of the plan adoption on the basis that for now it remained greenbelt until plan adoption and very special circumstances weren't made out. There was an additional objection on grounds of prematurity, which was abandoned late at the inquiry on the subject of an unsurprising cost award. Now, Inspector Rose, he allowed the appeal on very special circumstances. and To my mind, what's particularly striking about the decision is that he did so expressly irrespective his word of the emerging allocation uh, he described the 1.47 housing uh, land supply 1.47 year supply as uh, in his words a critically inadequate and deteriorating five year supply set against pressing housing needs which he saw as compounded by a substantial affordable housing shortfall with no recent local provision On top of that, the proposed development was to make provision for the delivery of playing pitches for the adjacent primary school which would in turn enable expansion and reconfiguration of the wider school site. As far as I can tell from reconcision, the idea was that the school site would then be able to decant their existing pictures onto the appeal site and then redevelop their uh, existing pictures for further capacity for the actual school itself. And the inspector considered that as an important benefit against the context of a, in his words, local school unable to meet needs of the village and with subsequent implications for local children so in light of those considerations and various other lesser benefits the inspector considered very special circumstances existed that clearly outweighed the both the definitional and the uh, additional harm to the green belt before anybody gets too carried away about the implications of the green belt development elsewhere it is important to emphasize that as uh, as the inspector uh, noted and uh, ken his words the circumstances of this application are quite extreme but it's also important to bear in mind um, that the allocation of the site is not a distinguishing factor. He held that his decision uh, was irrespective of that application. So ultimately, housing land supply, affordable housing shortfall, um, and and the enabling of the much-needed school expansion were the things that swung it for him. Um, So an interesting case, and of course, uh, off the back of... um, other recent decisions in the green belt which um suggest a slight change in attitude perhaps to consideration of very special circumstances uh, arguments um so that's it um from uh, the case updates and now mary you're going to kick off our discussion
4: with david yes thank you very much and thank you david for your patience um now in the flyer i described you and all of your initials and and you've got rather a lot of initials david and so I thought we'd just start with a little explanation of your career before you joined PINS David what can you tell us about what you got up to before you joined PINS <laughs> It's my <laughs> fault for not remind no it's my fault for not reminding David in the first place I take full responsibility
1: Well if you saw the last week of the holocaust inquiry you'd see that I was a recidivist on the old mute front <laughs> <laughs> sure none of you got to the end of that one um okay as the, as you as flatteringly describe the acronyms um, um my background actually by initial qualification as a historian and historian and then subsequently a, a, a town and country planner uh, and then after that as a building conservator so that's my academic kind of uh, background um and that's reflected in my early Early employment, postgraduate employment was as a researcher, but then was press ganged uh into the in into the um halls of City council in the 1980s as a planning uh, officer, uh, which put the, the pathway to to a world of planning, so a world of p- p- planning. Um and subsequent to that, at a at a strategic level at Devon County Council, but dealing specifically with historic environment, which was that kind of pathway, that that began to open up in one of the uh, w- one of those county councils with the, the longest and most august tradition, actually, of, of guardianship, uh, with a, a very well um, uh, manned team and uh, a, a really interesting opportunity to learn um, for someone at that stage in my career. Uh, so then I subsequently did my my historic environment degree. Uh, which was the passport to uh, really a career with English heritage, something that we'd collectively all kind of sought to aspire to. Um, And that was in central London. So my first pitch in English heritage was um, in the cities of Westminster and the cities of London, which is a pretty striking contrast to the rural lands of of Devonshire. So, uh, and I did that for about five years, but then we moved to the Southwest region of English Heritage uh, where I covered um, Devon and Cornwall, Bristol, uh, bits of Dorset, um, which I did uh, then until about 2007, uh, which is when I joined the inspectorate.
4: Mm. How very interesting, very interesting, David. So you've got a history of working for a number of organizations um and so when you uh, when you joined pins what sort of work did you focus on i i i'm guessing that you were obviously recruited as a specialist inspector uh, uh in an area where um you know specialisms are required
1: indeed i have to be very careful don't do what i say so of course that's the the pretext in which i got given absolutely no historic environment work at all and was told to go and sent out into the paddy fields of, uh, of Section 78 uh, to, to harvest kind of extensions and stuff. I mean, there is a purpose to that, but it's a bit frustrating, but you, you do need a grounding in that kind of work, you know, the, the high volume stuff to get yourself, uh, you know, confident and in the saddle. But then I did um, focus on uh, historic environment stuff uh, at an increasingly higher level uh, which is kind of the more rewarding for the what we you know call the Section Twenty stuff, which is you know the the detail of consent on listed buildings, but also the wider issues around setting and it, it's it's an interesting process really because you you almost you know when I finished at English Heritage, I was dealing with the Royal William Yard in Plymouth, for example. Oh. It, the most important um, collection of uh, naval victualling buildings on the planet and previous to that i've been doing somerset house uh, for example the re-, re repurposing of somerset house in london but when you come back to inspecting you know you you're faced with a decision on a on a window or a door you know on a relatively humble piece of vernacular architecture it's the mechanics of the process really that that become more into focus and the the you know the rightness of the decision which is a, a as an English heritage inspector of historic buildings, you're an advocate, you know, you're a partisan player and a de- you know, defender, as you see yourself, of the uh, of the of the historic estate. Um, whereas when you're an inspector, you have to shift to that impartial zone, weigh up the merits of the case, you know, so it's an interesting. But, view.
4: but sometimes life is like that, isn't it? You feel like you may be- perhaps you take a step backwards in order to just ultimately take many steps forward. Um, yeah. And when people are switching uh, career paths, that often happens,
1: doesn't it? It does. It does, and, and it, it, it's a very interesting place. I mean, as the decision maker, and I think that that's a lot of appeal for inspectors. Is in a world of, um, I suppose, sort sh- of shared responsibility for outcomes. You know, an inspector is faced with a binary choice when they get out of bed. You know, on the same side. I have to say. Uh, of the bed, um, but uh, you know you um, you have to make a decision. Um, it doesn't go away. So uh, yeah. Sorry,
4: my mind's wandering here. I need to focus. Focus, Mary, on the, oh, <laughs> or, or, on some ser- on some proper questions here. Um, what, what advice, David, would you give to um, wannabe inspectors? You've got it. You're in an elevator. You've got an elevator pitch to do before the doors of the elevator open. What, what advice would you give to people watching this show, whether they're, you know, town planners, lawyers um, about a, a, a career at
1: PINs? I mean, Well, it's a very timely question, Mary, because you may know we've got the advert out for Band 1 inspectors at the moment. So um, my, my pitch would be to that broad church actually of people you know I, I think it's important to emphasize that there's quite a spectrum of professional uh expertise within the inspectorate and it's that diversity that i think enriches it so i would be encouraging anyone from those backgrounds and and that of course would include architects but environmental specialists water specialists people with uh you know um, highways experience engineers uh, engineers there's a lot of a lot of breadth uh, that uh, of to our casework which needs to be reflected in the workforce in order that we do it effectively so uh, uh, that would be my first pitch is to say there is a place for you if, even if you're not a planner you know and i keep on reminding myself i am a planner um, but but beyond that Um, I think it goes to that pitch again is that you've got the opportunity to engage in a broad range of casework and remember, the the spectrum for us includes national infrastructure and local plans, as well as the more arcane areas of specialist casework, uh, including heritage and but, but trees, culture a whole range of stuff like that, which are skills that, that the organisation needs. So I would be very much say, saying, you know, if you bring that to us, we, we will want to use it and you will have the opportunity to exercise that judgement on a pretty unique level, you know, in actually determining uh, um, and decisions and, you know, actually contributing to that process and that process, that broader process of the, you know, of the planning and development system. So it's a great opportunity um, to do to to do work that you want to do uh, with a clear, a clear level of satisfaction in doing it well.
4: And is it necessary, David, to have 20 years experience
1: before you join PINS? Or you know, are you looking also for young blood? Um, well, that's an interesting question because the demographic is changing and has significantly changed in the time I've, I've been here. I mean, I spent three years training inspectors, three years plus training inspectors, and you, you do get quite a critical insight into the you know, the intakes of, of each year, and we were recruiting over that time. And I, I think historically, there used to be a threshold of the expectation of 10 years, but there are certainly people that have been appointed, and I've agreed to appoint, with less than that uh so um yeah and i think that that brings a different perspective to things uh, across a range of areas Mm. and i think there is you know there is a critical point where you want people to have some time before the master having a breadth of experience in in work areas that they can bring to the inspectorate but at the same time you know it's uh you know, it's a, it's a free market, isn't it? And hmm. you know, we have to it's identifying the right people with the right capabilities and competencies, which is, I think, has to be the priority over, you know, some hard doctrinaire notion of X number of years. Otherwise, you're not coming in.
4: Indeed, indeed. And in your new role now as professional uh, lead uh, uh, at Planning Appeals, Um, What does that mean? And does it mean that you're now a full time administrator and we're not going to see you on the road, as it were?
1: Alas, I've done my last case, of course, but you never say you'd say that, do you? Because, of course, you'll know that my colleague David Smith went back into the field after his tour as a professional lead. So you should never say never. Um, but uh, I think that, so, yeah, the, the straight answer is, yeah, no more casework for me. Uh, with a measure of regret, actually, uh, I do enjoy it. Uh, it's something that uh, you kind of find difficult to, to, to let go. Um, but... Um, yeah, without being too pedantic, I wouldn't. I'd be a re- bit reluctant to describe myself as a, an administrator because it, it it's kind of well, it's multi-dimensional, uh, and I and I think it's a changing role as it's a, a dynamic role rather than a changing role. Insofar as, of course, I've got oversight of which which high court challenges we defend and what we define as complaints that can or or may or may not be justified against inspectors in terms of, you know, feedback from from our customers and the like, which is still a critical judgment and you, you get three of them in a day you know in the second week you're at the job and you're thinking oh right okay um uh, uh that's interesting <laughs> is it always going to be like this um but uh, uh and beyond that i mean we're looking at the, the kind of professional areas and competencies. And at that point, I think that Charlie made in one of his questions that I saw, which we'll come on to in a bit more detail, but, you know, do we need more architects uh, if we're going to deal with design codes and, and building better and building beauty and, and asking for beauty and rejecting ugliness and fostering stewardship? You know, um, who are these people going to be? And of course, we do need specialists coming in, but part of my role is looking at how we can repurpose um, existing specialisms, find ways in which we can begin to build capacity with people with a background in urban design, for example, to get them in a position where they're able to take on some of these more high profile cases. David,
4: can we just um, talk a little bit about your last epic case, uh, the Holocaust inquiry? Um, I understand that that was the most watched Inquiry uh, at Pins, and I'm interested for you to um, tell us what sort of numbers that that generated, and also just to tell us about the lessons um, that have been learnt. Do you think about conducting such an inquiry like that o- online? You know, what are the strengths and weaknesses from you from the the inspector's perspective? So,
1: yeah, I mean, gosh, numbers. I mean, that- tell
4: us about the numbers first.
1: Well, I just saw a a post there very quickly of some really extraordinary numbers, uh, which is uh, way, way dwarfs my expectations because I I got a bit of feedback that the the YouTube... um, uh, uh, films or videos attracted twenty four and a half thousand views, but um, I, I don't know whether that was just what we captured during that time, and of course the numbers have will have grown subsequently. So that that global number might well be considerably more than that.
4: Twenty million, uh, according to uh, yeah. uh, uh, chit chat going on as you speak, David.
1: Okay, all right. Uh, I mean, one. amazing that's more scary than 24,000 isn't it really i mean the lessons around it it's a very interesting story in itself i mean we could devote devote a whole you know evening to having a conversation around that but uh, and of course about the the merits of it which we can't do for for, no. for obvious reasons. I'm talking about the process yeah, yeah but the process I mean we started off with the clear intention that that was a face-to-face event you know the whole status of it and its its purpose was such I think that most people would uh, pre-COVID you know hardly question the idea it was going to be a you know written reps or something like that um but but that wasn't going to happen, and so we looked at trying to do a blended event where we could do, you know, the, the, the process of the of the event live, um, but with the capacity for blending. And we got quite far down the line on that until the second lockdown, and when we were compelled to do virtual or nothing. And the, the the overarching, you know, imperative I think for all of us was that we knew we had to proceed with it and get on and try and make it work. So there was a huge investment in in making it work and making it continue to work and six weeks of virtual is it's a, a long time to keep something you know up and running and we had one or two glitches and one of the key i suppose risks around it was the tech failing um you know at both both ends yeah. of barristers you know uh, and at our end uh, and of course critical opportunities for people to engage with it who couldn't but but by and large we achieved that, but with quite a lot of investment, I have to say, and I had a lot of support. And we ran the event from 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 Bristol. I wasn't the last week. I after lockdown total happened. I did come back here, uh, which is where I forgot my mute button. But uh, and that was really challenging. Actually doing it from home. I mean, it was. Yeah, untenable. I would say, uh, to be perfectly frank, looking back on it, you know, you needed that level of support and space to be able to run it because the just, the logistics of it, you know, with documents landing and being processed and uh, and put up on the websites, it was uh, it was pretty. It was a pretty full-on team effort, I have to say, and it did. You know, I, I compared it to the to the previous one I did. I was in Kensington, Chelsea, doing an um, uh, uh, an assisted living case. That so was my previous previous case, which I was up there for three weeks on my own, pushing my own boxes around. You know, and uh, the the contrast with the virtual event was significant in terms of the resource implications, but. Um, I mean, it worked remarkably well. Uh, but what I would say, from my point of view, was that you know, you know, when you see the screen and it's uh, what was that TV program like? You know, they were all sat in a box and you said something I can't remember. It's got, yes, like, the quiz show. Yeah, Celebrity
4: that,
5: Squares.
1: Squares. That's the one. That's the one I knew someone would remember. So it was a bit like. Tragic, so, it's yeah. me. but it's a bit like celebrity squares until you realize it was only one person in one box who was there all the time you know which was me because everyone else you know would could switch off and go and do something else and six weeks of that you know it was pretty wearing and you didn't really think about the exposure too much but sometimes it would just creep into the back of your head and that's quite a strange thing to have to kind of deal with you know that constant exposure and and you become acutely because you're viewing yourself you it's not like being in a room projecting out, you know, you're constantly aware of yourself. And I didn't, yeah. <laughs> my glasses, I got my glasses delivered to me in lockdown and they weren't fitted and they, they do did slip down my nose. So again, for those obsessives looking at it, you know, there I am. And I'm, I look at myself pushing the bridge of my, my glasses back up my face um, repeatedly and it's just there, you know, and you're kind of not aware of it until you're confronted with it. So it's, it was quite stressful, but I was, the, the very end, the closings, I mean, the, everyone was very gracious. Well, nearly everyone was very gracious, um, you know, about acknowledging the challenge uh, that that, there was to getting it to work and that we'd achieved it. So it was, uh, it was really pleased with that.
4: Excellent. Well, I think I've hogged you now for long enough. So I'm just going to open this up and I'm going to start by asking Chris, Chris, what's your question for David, please?
2: Yeah, uh, David, uh, good afternoon. Um, I wanted to ask you about is what do you think the direction and future is for for pins because uh, I think we've all had difficulties with the virtual events uh, I certainly have I've been doing an inquiry with Paul Griffiths and we had some very difficult days uh, has to be said breakdown in Wi-Fi and so on but people talk about wanting a blended a blended future so w- where do you see that going Um you know from the perspective of the inspectors you you, you lead them so um, where do you think that's going to go
1: well I think chris we're we're still very much in the middle of trying to figure that out um you know I th- the, the, there's clear uh, direction of boots on the ground going back to live events uh, but there is also a clear recognition that the, there is significant value uh, in the digital realm, for a number of reasons, we've just rehearsed them for a bit, and I think you know that those components are going to be going to be part of it. The blend is a really interesting one because I think that's still in genesis, really, about how we begin to you know maturate some kind of fully resilient blended uh, um, process. is is still some way off, um, but, I, but I see all elements of the of the of these approaches being being present uh, in varying degrees to greater and lesser degrees, depending on the circumstances. I mean, the real point, I suppose, again, is that we're still trying to figure that out. And that's the, the process of the, you know, the, the research and uh, consultation that we've been engaged with over the summer, which we're hoping to pull together in a, you know, in some meaningful way by the autumn um, presently.
2: Do you, think, do you think part of that, part of the answer is to recognise that, you um, there are issues about uh, gender equality associated with this and people's differing commitments. Do you think that, that embracing some part, a digital future in part, um, might help to address? Because we've got some absolutely shocking inequality at the planning bar, um, as uh, as Mary highlighted. Um,
1: I think it's a factor. I, I think it kind of it's a. That particular question is a really interesting one. Uh, If you ask uh, women inspectors, I don't know that you'd get a universal response on that. Uh, You know, there is that equality of opportunity in doing work uh, regardless of gender. And I I think that's something that has to be worked through. And if there are the clear benefits there uh, on whichever way we go, then they need to be understood and uh, I think properly recognised, yeah.
4: Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, David. Um, Paul, what's your question, please?
5: Um, yeah, I'm going to ask you a question about heritage, but before I do, I, I'm in the middle of a blended event, and I, I confess um, it's run well and it's working, and certainly day one with the public worked very well indeed. So um, i happy to give mo- as much feedback as, as possible in due course, but you're right, there are differential arguments. So, so my question, David, re- re- really arises from um, your experience on both sides of the fence as a historic... Uh, England, English Heritage, uh, um, uh, inspector at one time, who's obviously considered very sensitive proposals from that perspective and also from the perspective of an inspector. I'd be interested to know what lessons you've learned that might help practitioners that are out there from both public and private sector in terms of formulating their arguments. Because one of the concerns that I have over the last sort of few years is that... It, historic environment arguments start to become rather more formulaic which Mm. slot do you fit in rather than looking at the real issue which is the substance of whether there's harm or enhancement so what what lessons would you convey from both perspectives
1: it's a really interesting question actually because like like all kind of types of casework it has has the kind of tendency of kind of the drift towards some kind of uh order or structure that that you know is applied and I, i have to Possibly confess to being guilty about that. I mean, I've trained historic uh, environment specialists within w- within PINS, and I'm sure that you all recognise the the structure of a letter, uh of a decision letter, and the 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 necessity, the 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 clear necessity. For certain aspects to be covered and addressed to avoid risk, insofar so far as you can, um, and it, and incidentally, I think that, that that kind of works on one level. But for me, the, the very at the very heart of um, historic environment decision make, making lies around a really thorough understanding of what it is that you're dealing with. You know, what is the significance of the asset uh, in all its nuanced uh, f- forms, uh, and it's you know wherein its special interest lies. Because, again, from the inspector writing about it, if you know that, if you're aware and confident about saying what value this has it, or what element of it has expresses a particular constituent of value, um, then it makes the actual understanding of the effects of a proposal Upon it easier, but more importantly, that judgment on harm. You know, because it could be possible to intervene significantly to a highly graded asset, where the where the capability for accommodating changes is, is quite great, because you know the sensitivities around it. You know, the the classic example of saying no no to the removal of a of a of a critical window in the back of a 1930s wing on a Grade One Georgian house you know, because it's a grade one house, kind of wears a bit thin, doesn't it? If you you understand the significance of that, that that, that actually that wing is a relatively limited experience, and if the proposals to put something back are, you know, at least commensurate with that, then you've not got a problem. So that understanding and confidence in understanding unlocks a huge amount. Um, I think the other side of it is, and I don't know that it's resolvable, but, you know, when we talk about calibrating harm, uh, and we have big debates about greater, you know, su- substantial harm, less than substantial harm or whatever way you want to characterize it. And I think there is a there's a whole kind of like um, new church of, of meaning around what substantial harm and less than substantial harm means. But, but as long as you're clear, you know, what the effects are and whether it's that threshold of harm is broached, you know, which is where you engage those statutory principles, those sections of the act... Does it? It doesn't really matter because it's the degree to which that harm affects adversely affects special interest and a balance against whatever you know benefits people are going to bring. So I think having a, a you know an honest approach to the magnitude of harm because we know the scenario, don't we? Where you know the council bless them or a third party or whoever says this is monster harm, sir. You know this is this is this is off the scale. This is this is the the world will cease to spin, you know, on its axis if you if if you can see to this and then. On the other end of the spectrum, people saying no, no, no. So it's not just only a scratch, you know. Yeah. I'll, you know I'll, bite your legs off. Um, you know, that kind of. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you make it sound so easy, David.
5: <laughs> of, of all the references, the Black Knight was not what I was expecting. Exactly. This afternoon, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but David, I, I can I can well understand where you come from. Having sat sat through endless wind farm inquiries in the days when we actually had onshore wind farms uh, schemes promoted where there will be endless hours of whether or not something was or wasn't in the setting. Whereas I just want to stand up and scream, no, what matters is what's the effect? I don't care about what the technicalities are. Like what's the effect? So that's heartening to hear. Thank you.
4: OK, thank you very much, Paul. Charlie, can we come to you next?
0: Yes, Mary, absolutely. And um, so my question, David, is to go back to a theme that you uh, foreshadowed a few moments ago. Which is, do you think that the building beautiful agenda, the new design coding regime, and all the associated uh, policy changes that have been made and are going to be made, mean that uh, the inspector is going to have to recruit more architects and more urbanists to
1: sit as inspectors? Um, I, I I think we will. I mean, I think part of the hesitancy around it is, you know, for example, to what degree is any changed. If I could put it, characterize it that way, uh, development plan process going to co- invest design coding in, in you know in the authority of an inspector to to determine its merits. And if that's the case, you know we're going to need a load of local plan inspectors with some really serious sensitivities around what good design is and what good design codes are. And I, there's a lot of debate around that. At the moment, you know, and the the way, the suitability and uh, I suppose grain and 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 detail of design codes, you know, whether it's on a on, a, on what geographical area it may relate to, whether it's a site, whether it's a, a district, you know, so I think there's a lot to get to grips with potentially in the application of of design codes. But you know, with with that premise, you know, ask for beauty. And uh, We can all have a, a very short discussion about what beauty is in the context of the planning system, can't we? And, and equally with ugliness, we're going to have to be making decisions that really do register a, a, a deep and clear understanding of aesthetics in, in in relation to the built environment. I mean, what what? So yes, is the answer. Sorry, it, I, that will be my belief. But going back to that other point, I was saying about what the part of this role is. It, you know, is that that if we've got We've got people coming into the, into the organisation at band one. They're doing a, a staple load of stuff. And we've got, you know, we've got the the Paul Griffiths and the David Nicholson's and the Paul Jackson's, for example, you know, at the in the senior kind of phase of their their profession doing doing those big cases. We, We need to be able to find a way to grow these people into a position where they're able to take on higher grades of casework and actually some succession, clear succession planning around that. And so I think there are probably two things is, yes, we're probably going to need more, but we're going to need to be creative about how we can utilize the skills we've got and and ensure that they uh, can grow and meet the the the, the growing demands whatever they may be
4: thank Thank you you, david sasha i realize it looks like as if you've got your journey's end what's your question before you need to get out of your car (laughs) (laughs) um can you hear me okay yes we can hear you wonderful david
3: i just i want to go back to chris's theme because i think it's fair to say all of us who work in planning appeals are obviously fascinated by the future. I mean, I just wonder whether you would consider, because obviously you'll have a say, that we have a proper forensic detailed consultation exercise, because as you probably might have followed on this programme, we've got a a spectrum of views, some from the let's absolutely go back 100% to the old world and those that say 100%, let's go to the new world. And I just wonder because it probably will dictate the future of planning appeals for the next 10 years, that we have some kind of really proper process to get everyone's view heard and considered by you and others in the planning inspectorate.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, forgive me if I kind of uh shimmy a bit on that, Sasha, but I mean, um there has been a lot of research undertaken with a whole range of stakeholders um through the strategy directorate. Um and I, I don't I can't give you a definitive list of who who they may. Be. But there would be, to my mind, little purpose in us in actually embarking on something that was going to be so transparently limited as to not give us an informed view, uh, whatever that outcome is. So the, the, I am confident in terms of the process that the, the range of stakeholders who've been, whose views have been sought is broad and that the questions are being asked that will give us clear answers in so far as they will be clear you know given as you've said there is a broad spectrum of opinion one way or the other about way, the way this is going and i i i can't anticipate it in so far as i see uh, you know each of these elements having a purpose and a value it's it's how they're balanced and Uh, applied I see I think really as much as anything else that is going to be where the the art is in in trying to find that direction forward I mean from my point of view forgive me it's Quite early days for me in my engagement in that area, but that's my my faith in the, in in this is being pursued, you know, on the basis of a of a clear understanding of what our customers want. If we if we look at the business plan, you know, we're we're going to be customer focused. We really need to understand uh, the op- and optimize the way we deliver, you know, the, the 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 those event those events in the future.
4: Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank, Thank you, you much. Sasha. Thank you, Sasha, for your question. And David, thank you so much for coming onto the show. It's been a pleasure to um, have you with us. Thank you. Back thank you. to you, Back to you, Charlie. Thanks, Mary. Bar- in um, Gibraltar.
0: Thank you. Thank you, David, for me too. Well, what's next? Well, we've got um, our episodes coming up in November and December. We've got uh, the Chief Executive of the National Housing Federation, Kate Henderson. And yes, really, we have Brian May, the actual Brian May, um, author of... We will rock you. The show must go on, etc. He's going to talk to us about his nature conservation um, campaigns uh, with the Save Me Trust. Um, as well so join us for that in the meantime we'll be sending you via YouTube and Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all those sorts of things and LinkedIn um, our regular case updates we're doing one in about 10 days two weeks time Uh, we'll put that in the can and send it to you so you can uh, keep updated between now and our next live show we'll see you in November uh, live Um, join us then thank you for joining
5: us now and thank you again David cheers David thank you bye bye Bye. this is horrible by the way
0: Ah, of course it is yours always are Cheerio. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.